We're back. Hi. Hi. Hi, Matt. How are you? Tired and cold. Oh, yeah. We are coming in, uh, at you from the deep freeze of the polar vortex uh, <laughs> in the Midwest, where we have been going through negative, uh, in some places, 40 degrees. Um, it was about 10 degrees at a high today, and I was happy, thinking it was warm, and then I w- realized it was only 10 degrees, and then I was upset again. But, enough about the polar vortex. Uh, this is the Kaiju Transmissions podcast, and I'm Kyle Bird, and you heard uh, the golden voice of my co-host. Matt Parmley, how you, how you guys, how you doing? How's life? Where uh, am I? Yeah. What's going on today? Uh, you seem disoriented, which is probably... I, I am. There's a reason for it, though. It's watching these two movies we're going to talk about. Well, yeah, I was going to say that's probably going to last the whole the whole time. Uh, and with us is a returning guest, uh, our friend, blogger uh, of Mazer Patrol and author of Kaiju for Hipsters, Kevin Derendorf. Welcome back. Hey, I mean... Uh... You, you call me a friend, but you invite me here to talk about Siamese, <laughs> Jupiter, and Gunhead, so I, I don't know if this is, if this is some sort of challenge or something. <laughs> we figured if we were going to suffer, uh, we wanted company, so. Well, Kevin's always a great resource, uh, and I was asking him about the Gunhead ma- uh, uh, manga, because I had heard that it was a lot different from the movie, and he was like, oh, I haven't, re- I haven't read it in a long time. He was like, I'll, I'll reread it and get back to you, and I was like... Sir, I cannot let you just just do this for no reason. If you're going to do it, you should just come on the show with us because I can't in good conscience have you experience all this gunhead and just and not tell the world about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I had to make sure it was only a slightly slightly uh smaller waste of time than it would have been otherwise. Ironically, the manga is not very different from the movie. <laughs> oh well, whoever I heard that from is a liar. But I guess we'll get into that. Um, so uh, we're talking about uh, the these uh, these two '80s science fiction entries from from Toho. Uh, of course, not Godzilla ninety or eighty four or Biollante. Um, these are, we're, we're going with the non-Godzilla stuff, and this is, uh, kind of a strange era 
for for the Toho uh, Tokusatsu films, um, and a lot of that I think is encapsulated in these two films. Um, we have Sayonara Jupiter, and we have Gunhead. Um, now, I think as far as like actual sci-fi stuff. Sayonara Jupiter was the first live action, you know, tokusatsu thing they did since was it War in Space probably? That was 77. Cuz they started doing like yeah. they did more disaster movies in the 70s. They kind of got away from that. Yeah, I mean, you could make the case that some of the uh some of the other ones are still technically tokusatsu, but Well, yeah, like Deathquake uh, is tokusatsu, but but I mean like getting into the, like the science fiction and robots and you know, space yeah. and yeah. Yeah, cuz like Blood Type Blue is is a science fiction movie, but the effects are pretty minimal. So like the combination of special effects plus uh <laughs> Plus science fiction, then it's you know maybe maybe uh, maybe since the last space opera that they did, yeah, um, probably for a reason. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, yeah, I guess we'll we'll just go right ahead and start. Um, so, Sayonara Jupiter. Um, Kevin, you might know what what's up with like some places say nineteen eighty four and some say eighty three. What what's up with that? And what year was it actually? Well, the theatrical release was March seventeenth, nineteen eighty four. Okay, uh, I might have screened prior to that in um, special festival releases yeah. or something along those lines. Uh, I mean, it was definitely produced over several years because they were they were working on it as early as what nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah. And if if you want to go if into you, planning, you could even go all the way back to seventy seven. Yeah, if, if you watch the special features on the DVD, they have a a lot of you know stuff of oh, this is when we went and filmed this effect shot, and this is when we did this sequence, and so on and so forth. So they they were filming for quite a while. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of that same crew was in, carried over to Godzilla in 84, including the director. So, I guess uh, I'll just t- tell people what Sayonara Jupiter is. Uh, for a long time, it was uh, one of the more elusive Toho sci-fi movies uh, until like, Discotech put it out. Um, I'm not sure if it's in print still or not, but I don't know how much... You should care if it is or not. We'll talk. We'll talk about it. So, um, yes, piggybacking on what Kevin was saying about the long production history. Uh, it's a little convoluted, so I'm going to be going off uh, uh, some notes um, just because it's a little bit of a back and forth. Um, so it all started in 1977, uh, and we are going to go all the way back to the origin of War in Space, um, which we talked about a couple years ago on this show. Um, uh, So, Toho Tanaka had wanted to make a sci-fi movie to compete with Star Wars. Uh, The Japanese had been aware of Star Wars before it got its release there. Um, And I believe, um, 
a lot of, some of the people from Toho I actually got to see it before it came out in Japan. So he was looking for the Japanese Star Wars to get in theaters before Star Wars, uh, so people wouldn't be so keen on the idea that it was a ripoff. Uh, that eventually became War in Space, which is a ridiculous movie itself. Um, so to do this, they went to uh, Sakyo Komatsu, who had written the novel Sinking of Japan, which uh, 1973's Submersion of Japan was Toho's biggest hits. Um, probably that might be their, be their biggest hit of the 70s. Um, and uh, they asked him to come up with a sci-fi story uh, that would basically riff on Star Wars, which he didn't really want to do, um, so he kind of resisted those, uh, that insistence, and, um, he was taking so long, uh, Tanaka just went ahead and greenlit War in Space anyway, but was still a little bit, um, you know, interested in what Komatsu could, could cook up, um, and uh, he still wanted to do it also, so he didn't really let go of the idea to make his own space opera, so he kept working on the story. Uh, he took about a year to, to really crack the story, and then he decided to write the screenplay, uh, which uh, he ended up turning into a novel himself after writing uh, the second draft. Um, and then the novelization would be what um, the movie would really uh, um, build off of. And uh, in 1981, Komatsu uh, formed his own production company called I.O. to help him get the project off the ground. Uh, that allowed him to finish uh, the first draft of the script, hire concept artists, model makers, um, start doing test footage, uh, and he really kind of got deep into the pre-production himself. Um, and Toho got the, the third draft, and they told him it was unfilmable uh, from a technical level. It's just, hey, a lot of the stuff that you have in here, we, we can't do. Um, so then they gave it to uh, Koji ha Hashimoto, who was uh, an assistant director for Toho, and um, they had him rewrite it. Uh, and that fourth draft cut a lot of material. It combined some characters and scenarios together. Um, much to Komatsu's disappointment, but it was the only way they could get the movie made, so he agreed to use that script. Um, and uh, Hashimoto and Koichi Kawakita, who would become the special effects director, um, they decided they weren't going to use any of Komatsu's pre-existing storyboards um, that he had done over the years, which led to more tension and disappointment. Um, they decided not to use the shooting schedule that he'd, uh, he'd prepared with his own staff. Um, and, uh, also the movie was going to shoot on about a third of the budget that he was hoping for. Um, so really a lot of his hard work in the pre-production phase was for nothing. Um, now, when it came to assigning a director, Toho was originally going to choose Shiro Moritani, who had made Submersion of Japan, uh, but he got very sick. Uh, he ended up dying a few years later. Um, Nob Nobuhiko Obayashi, who did House, was considered, but they ended up not going with him because his methods were a little bit too uh, out of control and unconventional. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. No, <laughs> Uh, so Toho uh, decided to go with Koji Hashimoto, who was the uh, um, assistant director on uh, uh, Submersion of Japan. Um, 
And uh, they they ended up uh, letting Komatsu stay on as a co-director. Um, so while Hashimoto was the primary director, um, Komatsu was... Uh, he was deeply involved in the decision making process where you know if there was anything he didn 't really like, he would be able to overrule those decisions and um, you know he he got involved in everything from consulting on miniatures and production design and even um, like setting up some of the miniature shots uh, so the two of them had some disagreement along the way. Um, now, Matt was too afraid to do a synopsis for either of these, um, <laughs> so I've been blabbing a little bit here, so, uh, Kevin, can you attempt to give a breakdown of Sayonara Jupiter? Sure, so, the year is, uh, 2125, and we're... Humanity is spread beyond the Earth throughout the solar system, uh, but resources are not so great out in space. If you're out by Jupiter, for an example, you don't have as much uh, solar radiation from the sun. It's like one-seventeenth as much, so it's difficult for those colonies out there to survive. They have this plan. They're going to turn Jupiter into a sun, much like in the movie 2010, which also came out in 1984. Just a bit of a maybe not so much of a coincidence there yeah i don't um, think so i i think komatsu was kind of i don't know i there's a lot of arthur c clark uh worship in this it's it's i don't think it's coincidental at all so uh the the guy that's in charge of this for some reason which i don't understand because he seems like sort of a screw up is this guy uh eiji honda who lives on the station that's orbiting jupiter and he uh has a a ragtag group of various people that work with him including a child genius prodigy and uh a space archaeologist who's there to investigate the alien spaceship that's just floating around on jupiter and nobody seems to be terribly concerned about uh but also the there are terrorists who are concerned about turning jupiter into a sun because that's interfering with nature or something along those lines they come and they throw a monkey wrench into the into the plans there and uh yeah one of them is is uh ex-girlfriend so they uh have that that's the the in drama of the of the movie is the uh, maria and uh ag's sort of star-crossed, uh, no pun intended, relationship where they're on different ideological points of view and each trying to bring the other one around. Meanwhile, a black hole is coming from outer space and it's going to destroy the solar system. So eventually the solarization project is converted into a Jupiter bomb that will blow up and knock the black hole off course so it doesn't destroy the solar system anymore. So that's a high-level view of the movie, and the things that it focuses on are not the things that you would think it would focus on based on that plot description. <laughs> yeah, you mean uh, making SpaceX a priority over the plot itself? That like that kind of decision? I mean, there's a plot. <laughs> there's space McDonald's. Yeah, I mean, the entire 
solar system, human civilization is at risk. Society is being torn apart because they have to bring together 100 million human beings that can evacuate on spaceships to somewhere out in the galaxy. This seems like it would cause a lot of turmoil, but all we really see is a dirge to a dead dolphin. So... (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, there's a lot of subplots, uh, many of them that don't make sense. Um, that The whole romance is like... Yeah, so they, there's a, an, a space sex scene where they, they're floating around in anti-gravity. Um, and then she goes back to like the beach where the commune of hippie-slash-cultists-slash-save-Jupiter environmentalists are. And then uh, they don't even see each other or talk about each other again till the very end. So even that's not like real (laughs) um yeah what (laughs) um yeah basically like the movie's a little over two hours the first hour in in some change is uh them talking about how we need to turn jupiter into another sun because uh the galaxy needs more resources um you know, we we don't we don't have enough resource energy sources, so we need to make a, a second sun. It's like okay, okay, sure. And then like a, a, another hour or so in, there they discover a black hole that's gonna like basically destroy everything. And they're like, oh, now we need to turn Jupiter into a bomb to blow the black hole off off its course. If it, is that something that's even like I don't know much about black holes. Can you like bomb them out of the way? I mean, yeah, that's something that you okay, could, you all could right, make happen. I need to make sure the science in Cyanar Jupiter holds up. Okay, you need um, to hire the uh, dude from Rampage, the scientist for Rampage. <laughs> if Akihiko Harada crashed into a black hole as his final moment on screen in a movie ever, or I'm in sure his yeah, yeah, just that way. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um. Yeah, and then and then like the next hour or so is basically a disaster movie about about that. So my question was why not start the movie with them discovering the black hole? Cuz everything before that point is is a waste of time basically. Wouldn't that make more sense? I yeah, feel like the movie just brings up a whole lot of things and doesn't deal with them. <laughs> it's just strange. I, there's, there's that, and there's other, like, um, one of the, the Hirata's character who dies in the, at the black hole, like, it's revealed in slow motion, no less, that he is a former lover of one of the scientist ladies. <laughs> and they do this, they do this reveal uh, because this other guy saying goodbye to his friend on a video, and she's like, oh, hey, pause that for a second, and then zoom in on the guy's face, which was plenty big enough already but they zoom in anyway and she's like oh i know him we were former lovers and then when he dies you're supposed to feel something but like (laughs) there's that kind of thing throughout the movie and we're supposed to care about these two characters that we see for what five minutes and they never Uh, share the screen together either (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean there that their death sequence is actually kind of one of the I guess it's kind of cool, the, the shit blowing up and them freezing to death, but it's also sad knowing that's his last moment on, on film. Well, also, for some reason, 
Hirata, when, when, yeah, he freezes and when he dies, for some reason, his hand, like, shoots out of the wrist like a Shogun Warriors toy. (laughs) Does anyone know why? (laughs) That's one of the biggest, like, WTFs in a movie that's, like, full of them. And yeah, as they're freezing, their faces are, like, pressed against the glass, so it looks, like, really strange. Yeah, that that sequence is drawn out too because if i remember correctly it's intercut with other stuff going on in the movie and so it gets drawn out like what feels like 15 minutes it doesn't take that long but like there's just a lot of those kind of choices and you know we talked about spacex but that just goes on they just float naked in space and against the like it's like the windows background that changes on your computer it's like that (laughs) but in the galaxy and it's just way too long uh they're, they play like a pop song, right? Yeah, I remember that too. There's a weird... There, there's just weird music in this movie like throughout the entire thing. And it doesn't seem to fit what's going on. I don't know if you guys felt that same way, but that's how I felt watching it. I remember almost nothing of the score. A lot of the score is um, recycled from Macross, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Oh well, that's a nice segue. That that will be a, a nice uh, bridge to our next movie too. Um, yeah, no, this movie is really strange. Uh, I mean, I like some of the ideas in there. I like the 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 cult that wants to save Jupiter um, because they don't think we should be killing a planet, basically. Um, but yeah, it's really just everything about this movie is executed wrong. I I told Matt in a in a a chat that we were in, I said, this movie is like, if aliens came to Earth and, like, watched movies and attempted to communicate with us through the, the art of film, uh, this is like a movie an alien who was trying to act human would make. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go one step further. I'll, I'll say, and I, I'm not going to give it the same rating as you guys, but uh, I think I feel a lot the same way about this as you guys feel about the Godzilla anime trilogy. <laughs> And that's nothing. Nothing lines up like it's supposed to. No, not <laughs> yeah. I, that's not a goddamn thing lines up how it's supposed to. Did and, you guys like? Go ahead. Bruce. I was just gonna say. I just it, it's 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 a movie where like every storytelling and directorial decision that's made is like the wrong one. Like <laughs> like nothing. Nothing is everything. There's not one thing about this that's right. Everything's like, wrong. A, a great example when when the the introduction of Ag's astronaut friend. Oh, oh his yeah, longtime buddy is just like this guy walks into his room and starts wailing on him, and they oh. get into a fist fight that lasts like feels like five straight minutes. And then and then a third <laughs> character comes in and talks to them, and they 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 still keep like punching each other. Yeah, it was that whole thing is bizarre. And like, also, it, we, it's not well. It's not the kind of like hitting that like you see friends do when they're just like goofing around. It's like they it, live <laughs> alley fight. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's really bizarre. Yeah, we should probably note uh, too that same friend is like watching Godzilla during the terrorist attack, and so like the as the the religious cult people are basically trying to stop the mission from happening and kind of destroying stuff it's intercut with Ghidra the three-headed monster so it's like oh Godzilla's destroying stuff oh people are destroying stuff and then one guy takes off his shirt and he's got like 
something written on ink on his like man boobs, which is hilarious. And everybody's wearing uh, name tags, and like some of them say VIP in huge letters. There's just a lot of bizarre, like, I, I was laughing out loud hysterically as at how bad that was. Yeah, in the middle of this terrorist attack, they cut back to the the American friend, like, watching Ghidorah and going, Get, get him, Godzilla, get him! <laughs> it's so weird. Uh, it's so weird that, like, his, his room is just full of, like, artifacts of the 20th century. Is that, like... Yeah, uh, having like on his desk or whatever. <laughs> if you you think that would be the equivalent of like if we had you know a bunch of like galleons in our room or something? <laughs> we're playing re- recordings of Shakespeare or something. Did you guys uh, like like there? There's a lot of nudity kind of sprinkled throughout this film, but there's one part where the guy's communicating to somebody else on like a different spaceship. And there's a naked girl sitting there that's either been drugged or, like, she's dead. And she's just sitting in a seat upward with her head slumped over. And I was like, what the hell is going on in this movie? Um, there's I, I feel also... like there's not a very charitable view of hippies in this. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, the hippies are, like... Uh, they're basically the villains, right? And then uh, we... So, they all hang out on this beach, which I guess is on Earth. It's the only glimpse of Earth we get, is this beach. Uh, and I guess they, the this the these hippies... Um, I think they're led by this guy, this Jerry Garcia-looking guy. Uh, I think his name's Charlie. And then they have a pet dolphin that, like, swims around on their beach. And then, like, uh... <laughs> Uh, for no real reason, they have a scene where uh, uh, the dolphin gets <laughs> in a fight with a shark, and the shark kills the dolphin, and, like, uh, it's basically like a Jaws ripoff. It, they even have uh, the main character on a, a little boat, and he fires, like, a flare at it, it and it, like, blows up the shark for, for some reason. Um, like, cutting the pieces with the uh, the rotor of the, the one ship, and... Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And man, I've talked on other episodes how I I watch a lot of like shitty shark movies and I'll be damned if this isn't the fakest looking shark and dolphin I've ever seen in a movie. It's basic they it looks like just stiff dolphin and shark not even puppets. They don't move and they they're like stuck on sticks or something and the camera just like follows them around and it's hilarious in all the right ways um but yeah then the dolphin gets killed and we have to listen to charlie sing a uh a farewell song to the dolphin whose name is jupiter by the way so you get it the, the, you get the, it the the, the the cult leader's uh, name is, is peter it's not actually charlie because i think that would make it a little too uh too uncomfortable who's, who's charlie then <laughs> is there a charlie in this movie or the other one well, that shows you what there's a there's a Carlos. That shows you what I remember about the characters in this. Speaking of which, I do remember Carlos is the the kid that works on their computers or something. Like, his, is that the kid that gets his face like blown off, but we don't actually see it? He just like yeah, we just yeah, yeah they, they, they just say he had an accident, and the next time you see him, he's in a wheelchair and looks like Captain Pike. Yeah, no, yeah, the so that yeah, the kid Charlie. There is a scene where he's like. I guess everyone's overworked because they have to like come up with this plan to. 
I can't remember if it's the turn Jupiter into the sun plan or turn Jupiter into a bomb to shoot at a, the black hole plan. But basically, they have to get all this stuff done in, like, a day or something, and he, he like, collapses from exhaustion. And then I think... I think there might be a time jump because they're like closer to their deadline, but it doesn't tell us what the time jump is. But then, like, uh, yeah, they just say that he had an accident, and then yeah, he's in a wheelchair and like half his face is burnt off. But we never, we don't know what happened to him or what kind of accident. We we don't really know anything. I thought I missed something, <laughs> but I didn't. That's just how right, this because, movie likes to tell a story. Because we see the other guy, the guy that gets the gets killed by the. The, one of the Jupiter Church's bombs, and I don't know if we're supposed to like link those two things or if they're just like completely separate. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. They don't, they don't seem to know either. They just say he had a, he had an accident, which could mean anything. Could yeah, mean he slipped in the shower or something. The I don't know. They took out. No. <laughs> when you do that, shouldn't you like rewrite the scenes to make them make more sense? Nah, man, not for this movie. They decided they didn't care. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to disagree on the whole. Uh, the The shark attack was totally random because they they drive that symbolism home really hard. Because right after it, he, he's like, "Why did the shark ha- attack?" And the, some hippies walk over like. Well, there was a gatekeeping shark out, so we let it in. And then he's like, <laughs> you hippies, you live in your bubble, and you are so idealistic, but the real world isn't that way. And they're like, oh, okay. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, I forgot like, about that part. I, do, I did forget about that, but yeah, they, that definitely happened. Yeah, when they're yeah, they're just like, oh, we uh, we didn't close the gate. And then he gives, yeah, he basically like gives like a moral message that has really not much to do with anything. Like I guess I, with the rest of the movie, it's it's an environmentalism is wrong and will doom us all. <laughs> um, did we mention how the movie opens with them like finding alien language on Mars? No, because nobody cares and it never comes up again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what you would think is a huge discovery. They're just like, I it's, it's never brought up again. But it's the opening scene. Yeah. They like they go to they later go to to uh to Jupiter and and there's that weird alien whale ship was that is that an, is that the creature or the ship the movie never really made that they do, they they did not tell us whether it was a creature or a ship they kept talking saying it was both and I'm like I'm very confused right now but yeah they they never talk about the other aliens they're like oh there's these drawings of things and I'm like I I see stick figures I don't see much else but okay. Yeah, it's so like, that was what the Jupiter Church was concerned about. Was like, hey, there's a sentient race that lives in this planet. That would be one thing, but that didn't appear to be what their motivation was. Well, they, they certainly didn't care about all the sentient life. They were blowing to hell trying to stop the other mission from happening. That's true. Blowing <laughs> everybody. Yeah, they seem to just be like blowing up planets is bad, but we don't know much else from like oh because it's like a an affront to nature or something. But I don't know. They don't really explain their stance very well. Am I the only one who thought they wanted to die? Like, they were just waiting for everything to die? Because, like, the sun was... The sun's fading, and they know that if Jupiter blows up, like, everything's gonna die. Yeah, well, yeah so but they're just, okay they with care. it. They they, yeah. they think that Jupiter is more uh, more important than than human life. Did you guys also like the <laughs> alien uh, seeing, or saying goodbye at the end to our cast? So long, and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> 
that happened? What do you? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's making whale noises. Whale. Oh noise. yeah, yeah. The oh, yeah. The, so yeah, I don't. Uh, no, they they. They they call it the Jupiter Ghost. It's this big whale like thing that is swimming in, I guess, an ocean on Jupiter. Uh and uh they call it a creature and then later they say that it might be a, a ship carrying uh extraterrestrial life. But that that's never answered and they yeah, it's like Kevin said at the beginning, they don't really seem all too, like, concerned about what it is. They're just like, oh, it's a thing. Maybe, like, if we have some time, we'll, like, look at it again. <laughs> Every once in a while, they'll, they'll drop something like, oh, yes, those Nazca lines warned us about the black hole coming, and then this, nobody says anything further about it. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, it's some kind of, sor- of source of life, because it, it communicates with... Uh, with a, with the cast at the end, so yeah, I, I don't know why they didn't just make that like, oh, the the hippies want to save the life on Jupiter, kind of thing. The the whole thing with the Jupiter Ghost is weird because it feels like it's ripping off Star Trek Four, except Star Trek Four came out a few years after this. So yeah. well, you know, goddamn well, no one from Star Trek Four was watching <laughs> Sayonara Jupiter. <laughs> I I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, oh, the, the Star Trek people were giant weeaboos, but I don't think that far. No, yeah, no, no one's watching this. <laughs> Did you guys like it when Peter like looks over Jupiter, the dead dolphin, and he's like, he's he's dead. I've killed him. In one of the worst line deliveries in the cinema <laughs> cinematic history, probably. I feel like half the lines in this are the worst lines delivered in cinematic. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of those, I suppose. I mean, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna say some positive stuff. There some is some positive are stuff. Are kind of cool. The, the visuals are at times kind of cool. I thought a lot of the stuff with the Jupiter's ghost was actually pretty well done. Um, that's really all I got, though. I mean, I'm out after that. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I think pretty much all. I think the special effects, pretty much across the board, are are fantastic. Easily, yeah, gorgeous. Yeah, easily. Uh, comparable to the same stuff we were doing here in the 80s easily um i I think that's one of the common threads that we'll see between both of the movies that we're talking tonight is both of these were times when uh it seemed like toho was still like trying to step toe-to-toe on the world stage of cinema which i think by the 90s with the economic recession and all that they sort of backed off on in terms of their special effects game yeah um that is a good point a good segue into just a more uh thorough conversation about the effects uh because here we have koichi kawakita as the effects director um of this and gunhead and yeah the every heisei godzilla movie from biolante onward um i i i think uh kawakita uh was a I don't know I think he was he was kind of a complicated guy um but I think he gets a lot of crap um from kaiju fans some of it deserved some of it not and I'm leaning more into not I I think that you know not everybody is a Higuchi um and I think Kawakita I think this movie Gunhead um even Biolante um 
really show that when he has the money and the time and the 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 resources and the budget, he can he can really you know go toe to toe with with all those other guys. But yeah, I, I, I mean there were a lot of reasons. I mean, when you get into the later Heisei stuff and they're chopping budgets and shooting times down, um, I don't know if he was as uh, had the ingenuity of some of the, someone like Subaraya or, or Higuchi, and so yeah, you see some pretty sloppy effects later on. But um, you know, as a technician and an artist, Kawakita is amazing. But as an actual director, like uh, he he's he's he he is not anywhere close to like Tsuburaya and I I can I can kind of see that but um I think movies like this and Gunhead and yeah the first few Godzillas that he did um show that he he is you know really good and uh you know that's not taking into account that uh he was uh had a pretty bad drinking problem um uh, and yeah, I think by by the time that the Mothra movies came out, I mean those had half the budget that you know a Godzilla movie did. So I just wanted to give a play a little devil's advocate uh, against a lot of the you know the negativity that that people <clears throat> have towards uh, Kawakita. Yeah, if all you see when you see Kawakita is beam battles, I suggest stepping back and watching something like this where it's some fantastic i mean particularly the model work and i think it's worth noting also that uh ogawa modeling was founded to work on sayonara jupiter and they did all of the um the heisei series mechanics like i think except for space godzilla Mm -hmm. Uh, so you know all all of the you know maser tanks and the, the the space time ship in godzilla versus king Ghidorah and the super X and all of those things like fantastic little intricate machinery. Uh, and that's, that was, that was Kawakita like spearing all that on. Yeah. So. so, yeah, I mean, he is more than the beam battles and some, some lifeless props, you know, I mean, he, he was capable of a lot more and, uh, it's going to vary by opinion, uh, how many movies saw, saw that potential through, but, um, you know, I had to, I had to do that because I mean, we might as well, you know, make a part of this episode about him, considering that, you know, especially these days, it's really kind of become in vogue to point out like, you know, his his errors. But uh, you know, he he was capable of doing some really fantastic effects directing, and uh, these movies show that. Um, and I mean, not to mention just as a person, he was just an awesome guy and his his love and uh nerdiness for kaiju i mean he's almost he's basically single-handedly responsible for a lot of the you know kaiju boom coming back in the 90s and stuff so so uh yeah i i think i think he deserves to be put on a pet a pedestal for for all those reasons Matt, do you have any thoughts on uh, Kawakita here? I mean, I don't know how much to add that you guys haven't already said. Um, I, I do think the special effects for this film are really the only reason to watch it. Um, it the, the visuals at times are like, hey, that's that actually works really well. I can I can see what they were going for. I think if the editing had been 
um, as an as a perfect example, like the the SpaceX. Like, there's some actually like really neat ideas with the galaxies floating behind them and stuff. And you get all the the miniature work, which are really fantastic. So, if you're gonna watch this movie, watch it knowing that he did the work and that the work he did was was excellent. Um, but again, outside of that, I can't I can't see why anybody would want to watch this. <laughs> um, if you could, if if anyone out there has ever put together like an effects reel or something just from this movie, like. It's Watch pretty, that. Yeah, you, I, I've seen this movie twice. I saw it once when I got the DVD, and then I saw it once when I just did this. <laughs> so, I don't know. There's probably like a good 10-year, at least 10-year gap there, and uh, that's good enough for this movie. Because I, if it's something I watch every 10-plus years, uh, I do get enjoyment out of just the WTF factor. Um, it's way too long. Like I said, this, the whole second part you could have just started the movie with um but uh you know every time it does get super boring something insane and just completely wrong will happen and then you know that kind of you know will kind of grab my attention again but uh it 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 has a reputation for being one of the worst toho science fiction films and uh i'm not gonna argue with that (laughs) Was this the first one that has the Japanese people speaking Japanese and English people speaking English like Han and Chewbacca and everybody just understand each other? Uh, I mean, that we see that every now and then in some older movies, like uh, like in Gorath or something, but or the Mysterians, but even then it's like only a couple lines. Um, well, no, the Mysterians, there's an interpreter character. So scratch that, but yeah, every couple, every now and then there will be like a couple lines. But this is the only, the, I think this is the first one where it's like constant through the whole movie. You just have be- people that understand each other. However, for the eagle-eyed viewer, there is a brief shot um, when uh, our lead character, who's Japanese, starts talking to an American character. He he picks up a little circular device. It looks kind of like a button. And on it, it, it just says, because this movie, this is just how this movie works, it says on it something like Universal Translator or something. And he, like, hooks it onto his shirt. And that's the only time it's ever addressed in the movie, so... It did, like, the bare minimum, but at least it did kind of, like, try to explain that. Is that better or worse, though, honestly? I think think that's that's nicely naturalistic of them, you know, if he he had to, like, give a whole explanation of it, and, like, as we both know, this is a universal translator, like, that would have been terrible. (laughs) So at least it, like, tried to tell you why everyone could understand each other. Um, I'll, I'll assume they were using one of those in Final Wars. Yeah, well, yeah, just assume they used one in Final Wars, they used one in Gunhead, they used one in... I don't know, I feel like there's a good handful of movies that started doing this. I don't know why, but... Um, I don't know, I guess I guess it's part of... Because this was... Um, one thing we didn't mention is this was... And I don't know why they do this, because every time they try, it becomes a disaster. This was, like, a huge budgeted movie with an international cast, and it was supposed to be made for a global audience. Like, they made this thinking, like, oh, this is going to be a, 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 have a big Hollywood opening and play all over America and everywhere else, which, I mean, didn't happen, because, like, look at it. Um, but... Every time Japan does this, 
especially Toho, at least, they're like, hey, we're going to like give this a crazy high budget. We're going to get uh, all different um, nationalities in here, different languages. We're going to use a lot of English. It's going to appeal to everybody. Every time they do that, it's Sayonara Jupiter, or it's Gunhead, or it's Godzilla Final Wars, or it's something that comes out so crazy and like wrong that they can't market it internationally. And see, the the rough part here is, like, if the same effects went with a better script, or it, it would have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, like, they, gosh, they get these people, uh, like, some of these people probably aren't actors, like... And they have these horrible line readings, and the, there's all kind. Of, there's a lot of English. Um, yeah, you would think that they would get like I don't know. I don't know if they'd need better interpreters. I don't know. I don't know. But it it always just turns out to be something that should not be. And that's yeah, that's Sayonara Jupiter. Um, <laughs> uh, as far as I mean, we we've pretty much. I don't know. I feel like I feel like there's probably something missing in a movie where something completely batshit WTF insane happens every 20 minutes. Um but uh yeah, you guys uh have anything else you want to add to the actual review part here? Not really. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> I mean, we we didn't mention the Space McDonald's, but you know. Oh yeah, everybody brings I, I that up. So. I did mention. Space yeah, yeah, McDonald's, but I mean, uh, it deserves more than just a mention. Does it? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's it's I, right at the camera. That's the <laughs> Yeah, there's some really, uh, uh, really um, blatant, blatant product placement product, yeah. where. Uh, yeah, we cut to two two uh, American guys in a ship. Um, I don't know. They're just talking to someone on an intercom, and then they uh, they're they have a space McDonald's and like I'm not like that's actually like what the container says. It says space McDonald's, and the guy like has like a Big Mac float to him, and he takes a bite out of it. And yeah, there's they have floating McDonald's food, and there's some like goofy uh, space-related slogan on on the box. I forget what it is, but uh, that scene's on YouTube, and um, you should just watch it. Just you should. Um, but yeah, I, I we we should take more than two seconds to mention Space McDonald's. It's uh, it's something special. That's for sure. I also just really love that the the message that helps them figure out that it's a black hole is dark, heavy, dangerous. <laughs> um. All right, Matt. Uh, I'm gonna make you do the trivia section before we do our ratings. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, um, our main character, Eiji Honda seems like an obvious homage to Eiji Tsuburaya and Ishiro Honda, as pointed out by the people who knew uh, Komatsu. I get it. Do you get, yeah, woohoo! Uh, but according to Japan's Wikipedia, Komatsu actually denies the connection and claims he did this in hopes of securing sponsorship from Honda Automotive Company. Which, I mean, hey, if he was going to be as blatant about it as he was Space McDonald's, that kind of makes sense. I don't, I don't know. know who to believe here, though. 
Because, uh, yeah, the, the article where I got a lot of this information was in GFAN. It was like a big article written by um, one of his Japanese colleagues, and he pointed out the Subaraya Honda connection. Uh, so there's you take that into consideration. Taking the source for this, the only source I could find uh, was the Japanese Wikipedia, and I don't know if it's like as uh, reliable, quote unquote, as American Wikipedia. Uh, and then thirdly, I don't, that's that's not really how product placement works. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know why Komatsu would deny it if he wasn't telling the truth, but I also don't really understand how reliable the that is. I don't know. Who do you guys believe? Uh, I'd say he was using the the name as an homage. I mean, he does intercut it with Godzilla. Hey, uh, I, I mean... I... Yeah, I mean, the, the Japanese Wikipedia, all, all it says is that Komatsu denies the coincidence, so... Um... <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm wondering about the context and under which that might have happened also yeah <laughs> uh the film was uh ground ba- groundbreaking uh due to the first japanese film to use computer effects and motion camera control that which, is I a mean, big that is a pretty about, big deal yeah we talked about how good the visuals are we, we i mean that that is if you're going to watch this movie that is the sole reason to watch it and some of this stuff's really impressive um Kawakita would later reuse some of the props and ships for Toho's Grand Caesar's television series. Uh, we also hear what I think is uh, Biolante's cry, the Jupiter ghost of Jupiter monster thing. Yeah, has it, the same. Yeah, no, there's no doubting. I like I yeah. There's it's Biolante's cry. They just reused it when for Biolante. Yeah, uh, Kim Bass, who played Booker, uh, would go go on to be the writer of Keenan and Kel and In Living Color. Uh, he also did some work with uh, sister sister uh, sister sister as well. Um, so if you watched any African American based sitcom in the nineties, chances yeah, are uh, chances yeah. are Booker from Sayonara Jupiter wrote it. <laughs> um, future Godzilla director Masaki Tezuka was the assistant director on this film, as was uh, future effects director Kenji Suzuki, who did Mothra Three, Godzilla Two Thousand, and Godzilla versus Megaguirus. Um, and he also worked on many of the other Heisei Godzilla films. I think that wraps up the trivia section, unless you guys have anything else to add. No, that's oh. it. Um, according first, to... First of all... I'll... Oh, uh, go ahead. First of all, I just wanted to say, like, you, you, you glossed over it, but Grand Caesar was 20 years after Sinar Jupiter, and they reused this props. Like, that is... That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's impressive, yeah. I'm glad they, like... I don't know. I'm glad they were actually holding on to that. Like... Cause, well, it's crazy because you've seen like how bad the deteriorated Godzilla stuff looks, like in some of the um, the picture books that come out. And, like the fact that the props actually held up that long is yeah. impressive. I guarantee you that's all Kawakita because he was a big enough nerd that he would do that. Like back in the show days, they would just let stuff rot and throw out, but Kawakita was like, I mean, he was a fanboy. That Matt, that big hardcover um, uh, Toho Mex and vehicles yeah, book yeah. that i have he wrote that and put that together like that's how big of a dork he is for this stuff so yeah he probably like kept all this in his house or something um uh yeah this movie is featured in that book as well um but yeah i gosh and grand Caesar's now was like 
15 years ago or something, which just makes me feel old. Um, okay, <laughs> so... you guys watch Grand Sazers out of curiosity? I know next to nothing about uh, it. I've yeah. seen some of it. I haven't... I've seen some of the first series, which was Grand Sazer, and I've seen the movie for Sazer X, which incorporated all stuff from all three shows, uh, and Kazuki Amori did it, and it had the Gotengo in it, but... Um, yeah, I've I've only seen a few episodes. Kevin's probably seen a lot more of it. Yeah, I, I've seen the whole thing. Uh, Grand Sazer is fantastic. Just Riser is different. Uh, it's it's more comedic. Sazer uh, X is when it gets really into like a little kitty type of show, but it has some some plot twists that might or might not redeem <laughs> it there. So and there's a, uh, there's actually a lot of Toho kaiju connections in those like they have their own versions of uh i mean they're not called this but like i said kawakita's a dork so he would make a monster that was like a homage to hetera or megalon or um i think a a reused bagon came up at one point um uh so yeah there's a lot of stuff like that in there and then uh hiroshi koizumi uh, played his character Chujo from Mothra and Tokyo SOS uh, yeah. uh, in one of those episodes as well. <clears throat> but, uh, okay, you guys ready for ratings? Yeah. <laughs> you sound really <laughs> excited about it. <laughs> How many uh, Space McDonald's or Space Max would you give uh, this movie out of five? Uh, okay, I'll go first. I am going to, like I said, I do get some chuckles out of it on a, like, every, once in every ten years basis. Um, that being said, I can't imagine the next scenario I would be in where I am going to be watching this again voluntarily. Um, but when it's on, there's just enough WTF and just enough incompetence on display in the storytelling, uh, that it's not a completely terrible experience. So, I'm gonna give it, well... I'm gonna, I'm gonna, every now and then we'll go into a negative scale where you have zero, which just means there's nothing redeeming about it, and then the further negative you get from zero, the be- the more of a so bad it's good kind of movie it is. So I would give this a negative star and a half. Uh, Kevin? So the, 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 the negative stars confuses me. Uh, <laughs> just don't do it then. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I, 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 I might give it on your scale, like a negative two stars, but I'm going to just go ahead and, and say two. It's something that were it itself with regular special effects, it would be a one star movie, but <clears throat> those special effects are glorious. Mm-hmm. Shinji Higuchi's girlfriend was wrong on that front, at least. Oh yeah, we oh, should we tell. tell that story, yeah, we, we, right? we'll tell that story after we give our ratings. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so, so I'm at a one and a half space Big Macs. Kevin's at a two. Where are you at, Matt? Man, it's it's a half star. You guys are far too generous. Now, listen, the special effects are glorious, but everything else is so bad that the only way I could ever watch again would be in a communal setting where we all know going in we're probably going to make fun of it the whole time and there would have to be a ton of alcohol involved. This would be one that could be fun with a group. Yes, it would be fun in a communal setting where you're all just kind of sitting back and and talking about it. But outside of that, uh, I cannot recommend it at all. All right, well... <laughs> I'm wondering where you're going to fall on this next one. <laughs> uh, okay. 
so um hold on i actually saved the the little clipping uh this is from a g fan interview with shinji higuchi um so shinji higuchi one of his very first jobs uh in special effects um was Sayonara Jupiter. So, the man who would uh, co-direct Shin Godzilla and do those glorious effects for the Gamera trilogy, this is might be the very first thing he did. Because I know Godzilla 84 was, like, one of his very first two. Um, so, uh, his story, he says, uh, I remember I went to see Sayonara Jupiter in a theater near my house with my girlfriend. I was a teenager, I was ex- and I was exaggerating my contribution to the film to my girlfriend, saying things like, I made this movie. But when we finished watching the movie, she looked at me in a despicable way and said, this is what you were doing? This is what you made? And she dumped me. I felt humiliated. (laughs) But maybe this incident became my hidden motivation, which drives me to make movies. Deep in my heart, I always feel someday I'm going to make a movie that can impress her. Aw, I guess? That is one of the best stories I've ever heard. (laughs) guy made a movie so bad his girlfriend dumped him over it (laughs) um uh so um it it, i before we move on uh, well kevin you have uh one little thing that you just sent us from wikipedia during the production of the movie uh io's staff was called ayukunta kinte because of the harsh labor situation. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's offensive or... I don't know. I don't know what to that's think a, of that. It, it, it that definitely seems offensive that, to me. <laughs> I, I, I feel like there is, there is perhaps not sensitivity training going on. <laughs> so Toho needs everyone to take a sensitivity uh, training course, basically. <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, okay. So here's a question before we move on. So, uh, like I said, this movie was directed by um, uh, Koji Hashimoto, uh, who, as a assistant director, did Toho stuff, going back to the uh, Showa Kaiju movies as an assistant director. Now, as an actual director, his only credits are Sayonara Jupiter and Godzilla 84. Granted, Sayonara Jupiter, he has Komatsu as a, 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 with a co-directing credit. So, those two movies, they're very different, and I really like Godzilla 84. Um, so, I guess my question is, well, I guess he he got, after those two movies, he was like, you know what, directing, I don't, uh, it's not my thing, I'm just going to go back to a producer, but based on those two movies, what what can we, like, put together about him as a director? Like, one thing that always fascinates me is directors that always make, like, only one or two movies and then they're done, and, like, trying to figure out, like, what would it have been like if they kept making movies, stuff like that, so what... Like, where can we gauge him? I mean, these movies are so different that I almost feel like maybe he's one of those guys that leans on the script pretty heavily. Right, yeah. Well, plus he had, there was so much, uh, obviously there was so much issue with the back and forth between the the dueling ideas that, like, it probably affected the first film a lot and maybe not as much with uh, Return of Godzilla. I mean, I, I, I'm with you, I like... Return of Godzilla a lot as well, um, and it's a significantly better movie than this one. It just this one feels so it, it's not fleshed out in any way, yeah. and that's 
whereas Return of Godzilla totally is. So. Yeah, it, yeah, it just seems like this was just a really chaotic production. Um, I can also see how with what Kevin was saying, like you know, he must he must lean into the screenplay um, quite a bit, uh, and you know, be very literal with it. But we also like very little has been said about how much komatsu actually did and what decisions were his and stuff so i don't know it's just an interesting question to me um i mean both movies have a have an emphasis on sort of doing more realistic takes on whatever had been done 10 years before by toho and both of them have you know some some science porn in them so (laughs) um yeah and, uh, you know, it, and it's not like Komatsu's a bad storyteller. I mean, Submersion of Japan is great. Um, he, he's done a lot of, a lot of movies have been made based on his novels, uh, Espy, um, Virus. Um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a weird question. I don't know if, has the novel been published in English? I don't think so. Yeah. Huh. Um, apparently there was a computer game. I don't know anything about that, though. Like, there's, like, no resources for a lot of this stuff. Um, there's, a, there's a stage play you can hear about on the DVD. That's there, there is. I forgot, you know, I, did you read the little essay that's in the DVD? Yeah. You know, I meant to, but I, I was so, like, because I watched the movie, and then I watched The Making Of, which is, like, another 40 minutes, and then I was so done with Sayonara Jupiter, I forgot to even <laughs> check out that feature. Um, so just just for people listening, and just, you know, there's more fun trivia, do you remember anything about what that stage version was like? So it was all part of, like, there's a, a big sort of almost counterculture movement in Japan where it was... Uh, sort of indie stage plays and a lot of um a lot of uh sort of weirdo auteurs got their start in that so like uh shinya tsukamoto for example came out of that sort of movement but so this stage play was basically like about the like wives of the astronauts on jupiter like looking up at the sky and like thinking about how their husbands are sacrificing themselves in order to to save the rest of the solar system or something along those lines so it was like completely stuff that's not in the movie (laughs) uh well that sounds more compelling than any of the actual drama in the movie (laughs) uh agreed (laughs) um okay so uh we're gonna get into gunhead which is another can of worms um and uh uh matt has opted out of doing a synopsis um, so I am going to make him, uh, I'm basically going to make Matt do as much of this as I can. Uh, Matt, <laughs> um, to be fair, to be fair, nobody wants to hear me try to tell them what happened in Sayonara Jupiter. The movie's bad enough as it is. So. It would just, I mean, yeah, <laughs> it would be just as, just as confusing, if not more than the movie itself. Uh, so Matt, why don't you, uh, give us the origin story behind uh 1989's gunhead all right so gunhead came from the second place finalist in a godzilla movie writing contest which are all fairly familiar with it was held by toho for the sequel to godzilla 1984 which of course became godzilla vs biolanti uh the script was written by jim bannon and it saw godzilla in a futuristic setting battling against a supercomputer that deploys its own giant robots to fight godzilla 
little else is actually known about Bandit's script. Um, it does share some similar concepts with previous unmade Godzilla films, such as uh, Shinichi Sekizawa's Godzilla vs. the Asuka Fortress and Kobayashi's Godzilla vs. the Robot Corpse. Um, of course, Godzilla vs. Biolancy was chosen instead, but Toho was still interested in Bannon's script. Uh, it was actually rewritten and reworked into Gunhead by Masato Harada, and he would actually direct the film. It would also be a co-production between Toho, Sunrise, Bandai, Magica, and Katakawa, um, allowing for a very large budget. Which, by the way, has that ever happened again since? It seems like a huge... I feel like that's more common now. Like, a lot of big-budget Japanese productions will have, like, a billion studios involved. But, yeah, in the 80s, I don't I don't recall a movie like this having anything quite like that. Kevin, does anything come to mind for you? Uh, yeah, like, like you said, like, almost everything's by committee now, but uh, not at that time. And granted, at that time, some of these some of these companies were not as powerful like Bandai, uh, but, uh... And that was before yeah, I mean, Katakawa. So, Katakawa was still... That was before they absorbed all this film stuff like they did now. Like, uh, I know they... Yeah, they, they I know they, they dip in... Dip their toes in film, but they were and I mean, still are primarily a publishing company, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that explains the tie-in novels and, and whatnot. And, and Sunrise was... You know, they had made bank with Gundam, but they were still, like, only a decade out, so. Uh, one of the other facts about this film is that, ironically, Gunhead was produced and released before Godzilla vs. Biolanti because uh, the latter had delays during pre-production and numerous script rewrites. That kind of takes the, the uh, production phase of Gunhead. Um... All right, well, I am not a fan of this movie, uh, and uh, I, I'm going to pass the synopsis to someone who likes the movie more. So, Kevin, uh, I hate to do this to you twice and have you do two confusing uh, movies back-to-back, but can you tackle Gunhead for us? Sure. Uh so this is a movie that has a bit of a backstory where we get an opening monologue that explains how uh, in the future, uh, far, far off future, the you know 2020s, we'll never get there. Um, computers are starting to automate things. Again, we'll never get there. And uh, <laughs> there's this island that was being used to build robot stuff. Uh, it was run by a supercomputer. At some point, the supercomputer goes nuts and kills everyone on the island. Uh, the military slash police slash something along that send their own team of robots in to, to fight against the supercomputer. Uh, it seems like everything goes dark. Nobody's heard from them. Cut to 13 years later. A group of uh, salvagers are basically looking for computer chips because of depleted natural resources. Computer chips are difficult to manufacture and they need to uh you know make make a quick buck uh getting some some of these chips from the computers that are on the island or maybe even one of these titular gunheads which are the giant robots so the salvagers get there things seem hunky-dory at first uh then a mysterious human-sized robot shows up and starts murdering a few of them they get trapped they find an army ranger who says that she is there to 
capture this uh, uh, this killer robot that had uh, broken into a lab on the the mainland or Texas or I think something along those lines. Texas. Yeah, I think she says Texas actually. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it had stolen some uh, some special elements from from the lab there, and uh, and she tracked it back to this island. So they uh, they basically are together for a little while. Everybody except for this one guy, Brooklyn, and the army ranger chick, Nim, get killed off. And they find the remains of a, of a gunhead unit. The gunhead unit explains how the, uh, it seems like the computer Chiron 5 is about to go, uh, go back online and, and, and take over the world using this, this element that it's stolen and a mysterious pass key. Uh, so Brooklyn decides he's going to, to pilot this gunhead and, and go up and, and stop it to save the world, get revenge for his friends and steal the computer parts all at the same time. Uh, army ranger chick says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to just go off and do my own thing. But she also finds some kids who are living on the Island who are the descendants of the scientists who were murdered by the computer who are named seven and 11. I get it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this is a Stranger Things reference. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so she, she goes off, uh, through some, through some steam tunnels or something. And, uh, Brooklyn takes his robot on the, uh, a warpath basically across the island, trying to get to the, to the Chiron 5 central hub. Meanwhile, he's pursued by one of his friends who's been, killed and turned into a biodroid herself and it turns out that one of the kids was actually the pass key that chiron 5 needed in order to gain self-awareness for reasons that i i totally don't understand uh <laughs> but uh that's all that's all prevented when bad computer system gets defeated so that's that's gunhead in a nutshell yeah uh, so in a nutshell it got messy towards the end of that synopsis, but for the most part, it sounds kind of normal. Uh, and it, this is one of <laughs> this is one of the least comprehensible movies I've seen. In especially like if you're if we're talking about Toho Tokusatsu movies, this is this movie is the least. It's so incomprehensible that it it, it just boggles my mind. Um, like what Brooklyn is doing, I is I I can figure out, but pretty much why anyone else is doing what they're doing or what they're doing, I don't really understand. Um, uh, first of all, we should we do want to address that yes, the MacGuffin of the movie, the uh, the super um, powerful energy source that the the bio droid is after <laughs> is indeed called Texmexium. Um, so if you're one of those guys that walked out of Avatar, like, Unobtainium, that's such a dumb name, uh, Tex-Mexium would like to have a word with you. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a Mexican, uh, like a taco place, like, let's go to the Tex-Mexium and have some tacos. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, so... 
once their teams die and Brooklyn and Nim uh, find the kids and the the messed up gunhead, like I don't know why Nim and the one kid leave or and why Brooklyn and the other kid stay. I don't know why Chiron Five put a key inside the 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 kid's mouth or the something? kid's mouth that made it's like makes, glowing the whole time yeah uh yeah the so the kid's mouth glows um so uh so yeah so yeah her mouth glows and like she she's about to like walk up to this green stuff and do something <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I mean the, the green <laughs> stuff is also what turns uh, one of the friends into the bio droid. Oh yeah, yeah. And... So so one of Brooklyn's teammates uh, is, is uh, she falls into this pool of green liquid along with the bio droid, and like it, they merge together somehow. And the movie's way of telling us this is to like zoom in on the bio droid's eye, uh, and the bio droid is. The the effects look are, are fantastic. We'll get into that. But the bio droid is like the weak link. It's a guy in a really crappy like ro- kind of robot suit. It looks like a like Black Manta from Aquaman. Like if he was like homeless. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, it zooms in on on the bio droid's eye, and you see against like just a generic you know turquoise background you see the 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 babe who's the character that got absorbed and like whenever she decides she's gonna like try and break out of the bio droid she'll like shoot a gun off or something so i don't know what that means or like how she has she has weapons that work while being inside while her consciousness is inside of a bio droid like i don't know how her consciousness has functioning weapons inside of a a a robot but um uh yeah i i i've seen this movie multiple times like i have it on dvd i i even had the vhs uh that adv put out and like i i first saw this as a kid like, when I was in elementary school, I had known Gunhead from, like, reading about it in G-Fans and stuff, and I saw it at Blockbuster Video, and I was like, oh, a new, uh, this is a, a new Toho movie, awesome, and then being like, what is this? Um, and that's still my reaction anytime I see it. And like Godzilla 98, every time I think I'm, like, free of this movie's grasp, something sucks me back in and makes me watch it again. In this case, it was the form of a podcast. Um... And yeah, I can't get away from this movie. And every time I'm like, okay, I'm going to give it a fair shake. Like, I'm going to try and understand what's happening in this. And like, the only thing that makes sense to me is like Brooklyn trying to use the gunhead to break out of uh, of this place. And uh, even in there, it kind of gets repetitive because it's like every it seems like every five minutes, this damn gunhead robot, uh, this giant robot, is just breaking down. He has to do something to like get him going again. At one point, it's making him like drink whiskey or something. <laughs> Fuel, yeah, um, he, tells him, he tells him not to get drunk. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> but yeah, overall, I really can't make heads or tails of this movie. Um, uh, everyone is kind of is is pretty flat um masahiro takashima people would know from godzilla vs destroyer he's the son of um is it tadeo takashima tadao 
Um, yeah, he's in King Kong vs. Godzilla, Atragon. And he's the brother of the guy that played uh, um, Aoki in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. Um, and then uh, Brenda Bach, Bakke, um, she's uh, the, the, the blonde... Uh, Sergeant Nim. So here again, we have an international cast talking to each other in different languages. However, we do not have the luxury of a universal translator this time. Uh, so it's just, I guess, in the future, uh, it doesn't matter or something. The funny thing is, there's a there's a Japanese dub in which the English speakers are dubbed into Japanese, and there's the English dub in which the Japanese speakers are dubbed into English. So yeah. And then uh, the version I watched, I guess, is the original Japanese audio version audio because, like, uh, Mickey Curtis, uh, he plays the the captain of the plane uh, at the beginning, and he's talking. He'll say a sentence in English. He'll 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 talk to someone and like he'll say a sentence in English and then a sentence in Japanese, like in the same breath and it's like okay i I, this is like messing with my brain stop doing (laughs) this but yeah i i've i don't i still don't understand what's happening in this movie so um i don't know uh what do you what do you guys think of gunhead i love the baseball references can we talk about that for a minute how the movie (laughs) opens basically with the baseball with like the Dun, 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 the charge thing that they play at every game. Yeah, the, the movie opens. Were... Yeah, Gunhead comes <laughs> out to baseball music to fight uh, Aerobot, who's the other giant robot uh, that's controlled by the evil computer uh, Chiron 5. And yeah, he comes out to baseball music, which I don't really understand. Um, I get Brooklyn is wearing, the character is wearing like a baseball jersey, but he doesn't come until later. Uh, there is a point later where Gunhead, um, he talks, by the way. Um, <laughs> he's uh he's trying to to talk to brooklyn and he's he's using a baseball metaphor he's like uh in the dodgers were down uh uh he talks the, about like the bottom of the ninth with two outs yeah he was like so guys. yeah so so we can do it and and brooklyn's like i don't know what baseball is <laughs> so like gunhead knows what baseball is but the guy wearing the baseball jersey doesn't do they mention the dodgers out of here like do they i didn't catch that if they mentioned the yes. dodgers i was wondering because okay yeah um, is it weird that they picked Brooklyn? Do- I mean, I guess because like Brooklyn moved, the Dodgers moved to LA like in the fifties. So that's weird. never mind. Anyway, that's I don't know. Baseball for sports. <laughs> I don't know ball. anything about baseball. <laughs> I'm like Brooklyn. I don't know. We're just reenacting a scene from Gunhead right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you like the part where uh, Gunhead was like, "If they take me out, I want to be on my feet." So they make him transform to standing mode. Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah. I do like that he has like different uh like modes. I mean the designed by Shoji Kawamori, so that's Yeah, yeah. The yeah, the mechs the mechs are designed by uh uh Kawamori who did uh Macross, right? Yeah. And uh, and lots of other stuff. Like he's he became he was pretty prolific, right? Yeah, I mean the the name Gunhead is actually uh that was something he had in mind for for Don Gaio, but didn't get used there, so got carried over um uh but uh yeah the performances aren't i mean just like the last movie they're not that good uh brenda bach uh if i'm uh, she she was actually she's actually a pretty prolific character actress like 
she's been in a, a bunch of TV shows, uh, movies like L.A. Confidential, Hot, Shot, Hot Shots Part Two. Um, uh, a lot of stuff you like a lot a lot of tv shows she's one of those people that shows up and it's like oh hey i recognize you um this is fairly early in her career and she's doing this like i don't know if it's just how she was directed but um everything she says she's doing that kind of like uh trying to do that sexy smoky uh yeah like sultry uh kind of voice and like like jessica rabbit almost but that's how she says like every line so there's actually a lot of times here where even though she's speaking english like i don't know what she's saying just because that's how she talks during the entire movie and so it's sometimes i'm just like wait what what did she say um uh, to give her credit, like, I mean, attractive gal, um, she has a decent screen presence. She's almost like, uh, to this movie, like, what, like, she's like the, the girl version of, like, what Don Fry is in Final Wars. Like, um, and yeah, I mean, the, the kids, I don't know. What's, what's up with the one kid? It's cause the one kid is, um, there's the kid that can't talk. And then the other kid that can talk, like, he has a thing on him that, like, says words. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I do, but I don't. Like, I know what you're talking about, like, but I have no idea like, what... It and was, it's always... It, you, it keeps going, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was a yak back. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like he's got one of those things. Am I the only person that remembers this? I, I remember it. I just I don't really know what it was there for. Yeah, I don't I, I don't mean, know it, what it was doing it, it besides makes, irritating me. It, if it's something that's that generates speech, it makes sense that if you have a mute character, they would have one of those. But it's the other character that has. Yeah, it. that's, a, that's yeah. the confusing part. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't. Hey, yeah, is the main guy is the main guy eating a carrot the whole movie. Am I? Uh, yeah, he has like a thing for cartoonishly large carrots. So. Um, when we're introduced to him, he has a scarf over his face, but the carrot is, like, in his mouth. Not in his mouth, but, like, a like piece smoking of... it. Yeah, but it, <laughs> yeah, but it's, like, in his scarf. And then throughout yeah. the movie, he keeps eating them, and, like, I don't know where he's getting them. I don't know if he but has them in the his pocket. It ends up with him eating a carrot, like, and that's that was the end credits. <laughs> um... Uh... Yeah, I, it's it's one of those movies where, like, you're often going to be, like, w- thinking, like, oh, well, th- this will get explained. Like, it, it'll make sense, but then, like, nothing does. Uh, I think the most frustrating thing for me is all the bio-droid stuff, because, like, I don't know, nothing it's doing really matters, and... Like, I could just watch a movie of uh, Brooklyn in the gunhead going through different obstacles and fighting different robots and stuff, trying to get out of this building and destroy Chiron 5. But instead, we're, we got this bio-droid who makes no sense, uh, This the kid with the glowing mouth that is never makes no sense, um, and, like, I don't know what anyone is doing or why they're doing it. See, I don't mind the bio-droid... It, like execution i have some some issues with but, but like i could see this being you know sort of like a, sh- a a predator type of situation where you have your team that goes in yeah and there's this humanoid thing that comes down and, and kills them and then it's also sort of like the the borg and star trek because it like assimilates one of them 
but the way that it's done in the movie is not very good. So I I, I wonder I agree with you. I wonder if keeping the rest of the characters alive throughout the movie and then like whenever it div- diverts from Brooklyn and the gunhead, you you could cut to like okay, the biodroid's going to take someone else out instead of just killing yeah. everyone at once. That would have been much better if they had been been able to draw that out because then there might have been a sense of like dreaded being hunted. But instead, everybody dies in the first what it feels like ten minutes, maybe. Yeah. Um, I, I hate the editing. The editing drives me crazy because like there are scenes where you think that like there there are times when you're watching this scene and there should be like a, something else happening and to bring it to like a natural conclusion, and then it cuts to a different floor in the building. We should mention this thing is like a million stories tall. And they talk about like you know floor three seventy, and then you're down on th- floor, floor thirty for some reason. Yeah, there's a lot of cutting back and forth, and it just it took me out of being able to really put together what was happening. I don't know if you guys had the same experience, but like the editing drove me out. Oh no, no, the editing. Well, j- hold on, we're gonna get back to the editing. But what you just said, if someone were like remake Gunhead and make it good, Matt, you just gave me the idea because yeah, this building is like a, a fortress. It's like several hundred stories high and they fall all the way down and they're trying to get back up right a re a, a remake of gunhead basically make the giant robot version of the raid yeah so bingo that'd be awesome <laughs> i i did it pay me toho i got it uh yeah that's i yeah that's like how this should have been like he has to go up through all these floors and go against like different obstacles so that, I just want to point out again, Pat Labor the movie came out like the same week. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that do? Like uh, box office wise? Uh, I, I, it was a success. Okay, because uh, this was I, not. I don't know exactly, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like very similar premise in terms of the you know mobile suits that yeah, have to, to fight yeah. their way up against this automated fortress. Um. But yeah, to to get to the editing, and I'm going to tie special effects in here for my point, like like Sayonara Jupiter, this movie, effects-wise, uh, I mean, the sets are great, the, the robots are fantastic, these giant robot models are awesome. On YouTube, you can look at, like, um, footage of, like, the making of, um, and, like, uh, a lot of these um, uh, giant robot miniatures are like the size of a person um the first shot we see of the gunhead is an actual full-size robot that they made only for a few shots but it's still cool um uh and then the aerobot is the the evil robot um and that's like uh it towers over gunhead it's got like these three almost like three heads like a Ghidorah bot um and it's really cool and um the problem is like I, I like the the editing is so choppy. I can't tell what's going on. Like the, there's a, a flashback that shows the two robots battling. Then there's a bigger uh, set piece um, in the third act that's like the big battle between the two robots. But like it's the, it's n- they're never framed in a way that I can like see all of them. Uh, it's all a lot of quick cuts and close ups. And these battles like are not they're incomprehensible. Like, I don't know what's supposed to be happening in them. And it's like, I love these mechs, and I love the design. Uh, The models look great, but, like, I have no idea what they're doing to each other. Um, 
and that's annoying. Uh, it's also annoying that there's only one robot fight, because, come on, giant robots, let's see them do a little more. Uh, um, but yeah, again, um, hire me to write the remake, and I will guarantee that Gunhead fights at least one other evil giant robot on every floor. <laughs> yeah, they, they made a, a lot of different scales of, of miniatures depending on what they were filming i was just looking this up and you, yeah they have the the full-size one that's huge and maybe the biggest prop of that type maybe in in any in existence Japanese yeah. science fiction fantasy film but uh i mean they, there's also the a one-third scale model was used for the fight sequences and then all of the uh you know like uh bigger you know hallway type of things was was in one-eighth scale which is still like this would have been probably a meter tall. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like normally. I mean, if you're talking about, I mean, the the big robots, big monsters, whatever. But yeah, I mean, if we're talking about a kaiju movie, you could say, oh, at least like the fights are cool. But like, the fights are nonsense <laughs> in this. Like, this movie is just like cinematic mush. It's cinematic like slop <laughs> like it's a gruel like it's just nothing about it is like a movie like it i don't know it doesn't feel like a movie it just feels like a bunch of scenes yeah the I, I mean again watching a movie that has that many quick cuts and it jumps back and forth so much with people on in different places and sometimes when it changes places you don't know where they were previously like it just moves so frantically that it's it's just a jarring and bizarre it could be kind of a fun movie because like the special effects are legitimately fantastic um but it it really takes any fun away from being able to sit down and watch it i was i was bored honestly because when you watch a movie and you can't tell like what is going to happen or what's happening on screen especially the first five minutes that's a problem and it's a very just dissatisfying experience yeah, I I mean like as much as I we've I've reviewed plenty of movies that I don't like whether it's a like one of the Godzilla animes or um uh Jupiter or I mean like at least I can like if you were to like pause any scene and be like okay, tell me what's happening in this scene, I would be able to tell you. Uh I don't know what's happening in this movie half the time. So that's what like really like throws this to the bottom of the totem pole for me is just it's i just find it so incomprehensible that it's just i don't know is it because it's not it's not like funny enough to be like enjoyably bad and it's not like entertaining enough to like warrant like multiple viewings so it's like my hands are really tied um i mean I do love the visuals and the effects and stuff, but it's also kind of stuff that we've seen in better movies, like, you know, Terminator or um, or really a, a lot of futuristic kind of sci-fi movies. So, I don't know. I don't know how much good I legitimately have to say about Gunhead. Did Kevin die? Did we kill him? <laughs> there he is. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I would say that, like, this was an ambitious project. And I mean, the only other thing basically until the CGI boom that I can think of that attempted giant robot effects on the scale was, was robot jocks. And yeah, Terminator had like a minute 
of stuff like that. But Gunhead has a lot more than that. And so I'll, I'll be more charitable than, than you are to it. I, I hear you, what you're talking about with the editing. Uh, Matt was talking about the cinematography earlier, where uh, there are a lot of scenes where it's shot too dark, and that might have been to cover up some of the special effects, but it might also... Uh, I, I understand that there was some sort of conflict that was going on between the director the special effects director and, and one of the producers in terms of the tone that they were going for, because sunrise really wanted sunrise wanted a live action Gundam basically. And Kawakita wanted to do some sort of uniquely tokusatsu type of vision. And then, uh, Harada was more like, uh, let's, let's do straight up science fiction. So I think that that sort of conflict could have been a part of what was going on there. And maybe if, one element or the other started getting belligerent, they might have almost overcorrected in the opposite direction. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, the, the colors are so... We talked about this actually kind of before the, the podcast started, but the, the colors are so muted that I think it just... That, with the editing, lends itself to not being able to really tell all the time what's happening, when you could have these really amazing visuals permeate the whole film, but instead it's just... It's very dark, and it's hard to see and, and really tell what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I just, it's it's just the movie itself is just kind of a irritating experience. <laughs> Maybe part of why I felt so good about the movie as I did was because Bird really prepped me for this, uh, sending sending text messages over the I don't know four <laughs> weeks it took him to watch it. Uh, <laughs> That's true, by the way. <laughs> Which it's you know it's, it's each one was just an escalation from the last one. It's like <laughs> you know, Gunhead. It, it took one of my legs today. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of which, do you guys like how at the end uh, to defeat the Aerobot, Gunhead basically sacrifices himself to save everybody, and the Aerobot kills him. So to defeat it, Brooklyn literally picks up like the, the arm of Gunhead, which is, like, a giant gun, and shoots it, like, how he picked that thing up, I have no idea. He's a mechanic, he's, he's really like that. Um, alright, so, uh, uh, so, uh, we'll give our final thoughts and, uh, uh, ratings in a moment, um, but I'm gonna talk about, uh, some trivia for Gunhead, uh, and then Kevin has uh, some more uh, oddities for us. Um, first of all, uh, the director, Masato Harada, um, I guess after this he became a like real director and made like some real movies um, that have been like acclaimed and you know people like him and hooray, this movie didn't completely destroy him. That's good. Um, in the States, he's actually best known as uh, playing uh, the villain Amora in the uh, Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai, um, which is also interesting. Uh, we mentioned uh, uh, Kawamori designing um, the mechs. Um, here's where we get some more production background. Uh, during pre-production, um, Harada met with Skywalker Sound, uh, so he went to Lucasfilm in Hollywood uh, to ask them about uh, doing the sound design, um, because his big problem with Japanese films was he hated 
their sound mixes and said, you know, Hollywood movies always sound better. Um, and so uh, he actually seemed to have a good meeting with them, and they seemed like it was something they would do. But then when Toho did the budgeting, uh, they told him, uh, <laughs> like hell you are, uh, that's too expensive. So the sound was done in-house at Toho, uh, and uh, he was not happy with that. Um there were some other ideas dropped uh, because of the budget. For example, Harada wanted Aerobot to be operated by uh, other smaller robots. Since Gunhead is operated by people, uh, he figured um, Aerobot should be operated by a robot. And since he's so big, uh, it should be like a little team of robots. Um, again, didn't happen. Um, this movie did provide early work for uh, Keita Amamiya, who, of course, created Zerum and Garo and all kinds of stuff. Um, he was uh, one of the effects animators. Uh, also, also Yuji Kaida, um, who's done a lot of kaiju posters and uh, model kit box art. Um, he was a matte painter. Um, and... Uh, um, Harada, he disliked the American, um, and I think he also picked on the German dubs of this movie. He hated the dubbing. Um, he wanted to get, like, he, he was hoping they would get, like, real voice actors, but it was the typical cheapo Toho dubs they do in Hong Kong, and he hated those dubs so much uh, that uh, for those versions of the movie, his name is off the film, and uh, they went with the Alan Smithy credit for those who don't know. Alan Smithy is a uh, fake name that a director um, will put on a movie if they don't want their name on it. So if I made a movie and didn't like it, I would be like, okay, um, can you say that's Alan Smithy and not me? Um, uh, some in, uh, some more interesting stuff about Harada. Um, he uh, actually worked on the Japanese dub and subtitles for uh, Full Metal Jacket, and he actually kind of um, got to know Stanley Kubrick uh, quite a bit during that process, and he would talk to Kubrick over the phone late at night, um, stuff like that I thought was pretty cool. Also, Howard Hawks, uh, the great American director Howard Hawks, um, kind of uh, uh, mentored him a little bit uh, in the early days. Um, uh, fans of the movie include Mizuo Yoshida, who played uh, Godzilla and GMK, and uh, half of Legion and Gamera, etc., etc. Uh, but the big one here is James Cameron, who... Um, uh, Cameron obviously is big into Japanese genre stuff and anime, and, um, I mean, he's produced that Battle Angel movie that's coming out. I mean, that was like a passion project of his forever. Um, but he was actually a big fan of Gunhead, uh, partially probably because of how much blatant James Cameron worship this movie has. Uh, but he, he liked the movie so much that, um, he and uh, he met with Harada and they were, uh, trying to collaborate on a project together that just didn't pan out, I suppose, for whatever reason. Uh, and then also, um, Kawakita did produce a short, uh, it was, was it a prequel or a sequel, Kevin? The little short film? It was a prequel. Yeah, yeah. Um, Kawakita did a prequel for uh, a recent, as in maybe eight years or so ago, um, uh, model kit of the Gunhead, and it was a, a brand new short film that he did and did the effects for, um, and it came, the, this kit came with a DVD. Uh, however, I haven't been able, me and Kevin, uh, so if neither of us can find it, you know it's, who knows where it is. Uh, we couldn't find it online. Um, I'm sure you can probably get an, the kit for expensive somewhere. 
and get that DVD. I, however, I will say I watched the closing credits of it, and what I saw uh, in the fragments of footage there looked pretty cool. Um, that was at G-Fest when Kawakita was a guest. He showed it, and I walked into his panel like right at the very end. Um, so I saw the credits of uh, Gunhead 2 or whatever. Um, and lastly, uh, for me, the video game um, known in the United States as Blazing Lasers ra- rather than Gunhead uh, for tur- Turbo Graphics um, uh, is one of Kanye West's favorite games of all time. Um, and did he sample any music from that game? I feel like I heard he did, but I don't know. Anyway, um, so yeah, James Cameron loves the movie and Kanye West loves the video game. That's Gunhead. <laughs> um, now Kevin, now, now Gunhead, uh, Kevin mentioned earlier there were some print spinoffs and, uh, and, and stuff, and, um, uh, so, Kevin, what, what's out there that you were able to, to find? Um, uh, I know there was a manga version of the movie and some other things, so uh, edumacate us on the wider Gunhead universe. Sure. Uh, so, like you mentioned, there is the... It looks like there were actually two different video games, um, one of which became Blazing Lasers. Uh, but then there was also the manga, which has been released in English from, uh, I, I believe it was Fizz, but it might have been Dark Horse. Um, I, I should know this having read it earlier in the week. Uh, and that was uh, an adaptation by uh, Kia Asamiya, who uh, is a prolific guy. He did... Um, Dark Angel, Silent Mobius, uh, Batman, Child of Dreams, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Uh, he, he's done a bunch of, uh, of kaiju designs also. So some of the... I'd, I'd have to double check, but like um, like Earth Defense Widow, um, he, he designed monsters for Kamen Rider, things like that. Anyway, so he did this, uh, this Gunhead manga that is the reason why I'm here. And like I said before, it's not actually all that different from the, from the screenplay. I think a lot of it could be, uh, identical. The biodroid is a very different design. It's, it's much more, if you think of like your anime robot, that's, that's what it looks like. It could be like Tekaman or something. Um, the way that baby dies, it gets replaced by a biodroid is also different. She doesn't just fall into a green pool. She, uh, gets crushed under rocks and they, they leave her behind. And then she comes back as, as the Borg before the Borg or whatever. Uh, and, uh, it does explain, um, Brooklyn's in, in the movie, he has this, this hang up that unless I was just not paying attention, they don't really explain that. He's like, oh no, I'm a mechanic. I'm not a pilot. I can't be a pilot. You have to pilot this instead. They mention like, that, and then like, I don't know. I guess that's the closest thing he has to a character arc is that he gets over his fear of flying <laughs> at the end when yeah. he flies the ship. It's mentioned, but it sounds like it's a little more prominent in the in the in the manga. Yeah, they they just give a little bit of his backstory, explaining like uh, how his father died or something, and that's why he's, he's got this this phobia about it. Uh, <laughs> 
we we didn't mention the whole like, weird thing about playing with guns that seems to be yeah yeah the we, yeah it should be reminded that this movie has a uh, like every every 10 or 20 minutes or so someone usually brooklyn is playing with a gun and he's told to stop doing that because it's dangerous yeah i, I don't think they, they explain that any particularly better in the manga but uh <laughs> the the u.s release of the manga is flipped and colorized which is a little that shows how old it was um because back in the day when they wanted to make manga look like american comics they would reverse the images so it would read from uh, left to right it would also uh go over the black and white art with with color um and then it's it's full of all of these advertisements talking about how the how the movie is coming soon and expected in the in the far off year of 1991 <laughs> that's something that is available it's you know if you're a collector like me go for it otherwise you could skip it i i actually think that seeing the robot battles on the page is a little less special than seeing them in live action because you've seen robot battles on the page a whole lot of times done with miniatures is less common uh what uh so what i mean would you say the manga it makes more sense <laughs> than the movie it's about the same. Like okay. I still don't understand what the deal is. Like why why is eleven a pass key? I don't know. Uh, okay. Um, so there were a couple Gunhead books. Was is this the only one that got an English um, run? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the manga was the only one. The novels certainly didn't. Uh, the novels I think were just they were released prior to the movie, and it sounds like there were three of them that sort of form a series. Uh, and then they were, so they were released prior to the movie in, in 1989. And then finally in 2016, they got a Kindle release in Japan, but those are all Japanese only. Do we know like anything they, about them? Those all take place in like the very far future. And I think like the first two are lead ups to a third story. That's vaguely, sounds like the the movie based on the descriptions that i've read but it's, it sounds it's also like it's um like a space opera type of thing yeah there was than, one synopsis you showed me that like it sounded like it i didn't know, know what it would even have to do with gunhead basically yeah the, i mean the, the first one when i when i saw it i was like what is this this doesn't this seems like they just put the gunhead name on here but apparently they like if you look at the third one that's where it like starts to sound a little bit more like gunhead and then it's like oh there's this chiron 5 computer that the gunhead has to go battle against on something called hjo i don't know if that's an android or, or, or there's sorry an asteroid or uh or what but uh it's it's very difficult because all we have to go on is the back of the books i mean you could assuming you can get them shipped to you probably get each one of these for like one cent, but uh, <laughs> I, I haven't. And I don't know if I have the patience to sit down with a dictionary and try to, to parse out a whole novel in Japanese. No, but I'm sure John LeMay will. So whatever, let him, <laughs> let him do it. <laughs> um, I have a question about the, the manga uh, relating to the movie. Do Brooklyn and Nim kiss at the end? see my my memory is terrible because that's one thing that i want that i forgot to bring up in the movie like for some reason they kiss at the end like they don't really like each other through the movie they don't seem interested in each other and 
after they kiss, they still don't seem th- to like they're that fond of each other or interested. So it's it's one of the most like unearned cinematic kisses I I can think of. Yeah, it kind of just exists. Definitely not earned. <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah they 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 totally do second to last page huh there you oh. go and i take it they have just uh they they don't have any more kind of attraction to each other there than they do in the movie <laughs> it's i mean like i said it's just basically like scene for scene <laughs> the same so, so what? <laughs> uh the the guy and the girl they're in a they're in a life or death situation. I guess that's just the way it worked in the eighties, right? But yeah, uh, Gunhead like Sayonara Jupiter um, was a box office disaster, um, with some rumors saying that uh, the failure of this movie is kind of where Kawakita's drinking kind of started to get out of control. Um, I don't know; he's not around uh, <laughs> to tell us. Um, so, uh, final thoughts and rating for your Gunhead. How many, uh, oof. Oh, you know, we didn't mention the, uh, the robot, uh, Pepsi dispenser. The, there's a robot Pepsi machine. <laughs> totally forgot about that. Um, so yeah, because the other thing we, that we needed to talk about in this movie, uh, yeah, crazy product placement. Um, so how many robotic, uh, uh, Pepsi machines, um, how many Pepsi robots do you give this out of five? Uh, I'm going to go n- one-fourth a star. Is that, is that a thing? <laughs> I, mean, it's, I suppose. It's worse, it's worse than Sayonara Jupiter, and it's, I mean, it's it's bad. Um, again, special effects notwithstanding, everything else is just totally nonsensical. So, yeah, one-fourth star, an eighth. I don't know. I'm getting smaller and smaller as it. Uh... What'd you give <laughs> Jupiter again? Uh, half, half star. Oof, okay, alright. I'm so tempted to give this a zero. Like, if I was watching it right now, I would give it a zero. Like, every time I watch this movie, I get so irritated, which, uh, Kevin described the messages I was sending. Somehow your text bird was getting bigger every time. Like, I swear the font changed, (laughs) like, with every escalation. Uh, So, I don't know, man. Like, now thinking about, like, oh, the visuals are cool and the robots are cool, like... I'm I'm more in the half star area, but you know what? I need to I need to stick to my convictions here because I'm already letting Gunhead trick me, uh, re- retroactively trick me into thinking it's better than it is, and it 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 does this to me. I'm not settling for it, damn it. So Gunhead, I I realize the very few qualities you have, but I I can't let you do this to me again. I I need to stick up for myself and give you a zero. Bird, is that the first zero that we ever given out? No. <laughs> I gave, I think, uh... This might be the, the second. I didn't give it as... I didn't give City on the Edge of Battle a zero. That was you. Um, this would... This might be the second. The Transformers Revenge of the Fallen I gave a zero. Oh, yeah. That's right. So, Gunhead, you have the pl- the, the luxury of uh, of sitting next to that whatever that is um so kevin we'll we'll take take us out on a, a high, lift our spirits a little bit give us some positivity take us out on a higher note Man, you guys are being so mad uh, <laughs> i'll just start by saying i really like shin godzilla and, <laughs> uh yeah uh so i 
I enjoyed it. I, I got to say, like, I understand a lot of the flaws, but I think that there's a lot going for it. I think that the miniatures are beautiful. I like a lot of the, the set design when you've got this. I mean, it's it's unlike any other Tokusatsu set that you'll see yeah. in terms of the, the way things look. Mm-hmm. I, I think they did some some fun things with a vaguely post-apocalyptic world. Yeah, they could have delved into it a little bit deeper. Uh, uh, I think that the score is awesome. I think that's something we didn't really talk about. It's, it's yeah, I'm mixed on the score. Uh, it gets, it. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I it gets a little too repetitive at times for me. But overall, I, it is. I, I think it's. I think it's decent for, especially, like a movie of this time period. A lot of the scores had that kind of really synthy. Um, it, this score was a, by a jazz musician, which I thought was kind of a strange thing to learn but yeah but, the same guy that did the score for metropolis mm-hmm, yeah um yeah no i i think the score is all right when it's not repeating the same i can't remember off the top of my head so i should count my blessings but there's one cue <laughs> that it repeats a lot but when it's not doing that i actually do think it's a good score so Sorry, Kevin. <laughs> yeah yeah and and just in terms of being like this this weird sort of live action anime type of thing that you would get basically only in in that that period where Japan was was doing really hot and you don't get that sort of thing anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, also I would say that like this is a good put on in the background at a party type of movie where you can look over and see the visuals and be like, ooh, that's pretty cool. And you, if you don't pay, you know, as full attention, maybe as Bird did, maybe you'll, <laughs> you'll have a much better time. <laughs> That's a ringing endorsement, but uh, so where where is it? Uh, where does it fall on the uh, on the how many uh, robot Pepsi things do you give this? Yeah, so I mean, I I actually had a better time watching this than I did signing on our Jupiter. So I'm going to go with uh, with two and a half uh, Robocola Pepsi types. Oh wow. Um, or perhaps two and a half sushi slappers. Oh god, yeah, I forgot sushi slappers. Yeah, that's I don't know what that means. <laughs> But I think it's supposed to be an ethnic. Uh, slur, is it? But, uh, I, but are are Japanese people saying it? No, it's it's the it's the one of the one of the Western. Okay, uh, oddly racist against its own people as a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was weird too. Uh, so yeah, I mean, the these uh, these two movies give you a glimpse into a very strange time. Um, however, yeah, I mean, honestly, both are absolute home runs for Kawakita. Um, I mean, just go on YouTube or look up some clips. Uh, I mean, a ton of footage from Gunhead was used in a Frontline Assembly music video. So if you like industrial music, go look at that. I mean, you can see a lot of the the cool stuff in it. Um, but yeah, it's just, just, they just don't hold up as movies, but the, the special effects showcases are fantastic. And any uh, Kawakita doubters out there um, should uh, uh, do the get, get educated... Um, and check this stuff out. Um, what? And I want to know more about what the original script with Godzilla was going to be like. And even John LeMay, who is like the guy for that, uh, he even he hasn't really found a lot of information. But um, I have the whole uh, Gunhead um, Perfection book, you know, with all of these. Uh, you're hardcore, man. Storybooks, the storyboards, the whole script. All of that stuff, like nothing about that. Yeah, <laughs> like that's sort of yeah. stunning. I wonder yeah. if they're shying away from bringing that up for some yeah, reason. Yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I would love to know more. It sounded kind of the same, but just with 
Godzilla. Like, I mean, the the Chiron Five uh, operating like evil robots. Like we see that with the Aerobot. So it sounds like it would have been like Godzilla in the the this same future setting, and he would just be the one fighting. You know, Chiron Five's you know uh, obstacles and and Aerobots and stuff. So I don't know. It could have been interesting, but. We'll never know. We got Biolante instead, so whatever. You feel like you dodged a bullet there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was the almost Godzilla movie, Gunhead. Um, all right, I, 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 anything else uh, we got here? We, we good? I'll the take... suffering has ended. Yes. Reju- rejoice. <laughs> all right, so, um, yeah, it sounds like we're ready to head out. If anyone has anything, speak now, forever hold your peace. All right, so Thanks, Kevin. yeah, thank, awesome Kevin. Always. Thank you. Uh, you uh, have uh, added quite a bit of additional knowledge, and uh, as always, it's a pleasure. And um, the, I'm sure you'll be back uh, very soon. Uh, thanks again. All right, I'm gonna go rewatch Planet Eater now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. All right, good night, everybody. <laughs>